All right. Good morning again. Um, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I'm uh, one of the pastors and one of the elders here at Living Hope. And uh, we are absolutely thrilled that you are worshiping with us, whether you are worshiping online or you're here in the building, whether you're here uh, celebrating with family and a baptism that took place, or whether you just happen to walk in the door for the first time today. We are absolutely thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us today. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to have the honor to do that. Uh, I usually am standing right out there near the, the front door after the service and would love for you to swing by and say howdy to me. Uh, we are, as a church family, walking through the New Testament together this year. We are actually reading one chapter a day, five days a week, and uh, we're not necessarily going straight from Matthew through Revelation. In fact, Matthew will be the last book of the New Testament we read through together as a church family. But right now, we are in the book of John. And in fact, if you picked up a worship guide at the bottom of the worship guide, it'll show you that this week we'll be reading John chapters 15 through 19. We also have reading guides available online as well as out in the, uh, in the hallway at, uh, on the rack out there. But we would love for you to be able to read along with us as we go through the New Testament together as a church family. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be a Bible in a chair near you. We'd love for you to utilize that. If you need a Bible to take home, uh, that is our gift to you. You can feel free to take that home when we dismiss a little bit later. But we are in a series in the book of John. Uh, this week and next week we'll finish up the series. It's called Signs and Statements. And the reason that we have called it that is because throughout the book of John, uh, the gospel writer of John, he, he has shared with us seven signs and seven statements of Jesus that reveal to us who Jesus is. And so let me, let me explain quickly what a sign is. A sign is a miraculous event, a, a healing or a miracle that Jesus performs, but it's more than just what it appears to be on the surface. Uh, the sign points back to some deeper truths of who God is and who Jesus is. And so there's, there's more to the story than just uh, being awed by some sort of miracle. There, there's a deeper meaning. And then the statements, there's seven of those as well, and each of the statements are statements that Jesus makes about himself by saying, I am. And he'll describe himself as many things, including I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life. And in today's passage, we're looking at a statement he makes that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. On the back of your worship guide, you'll notice uh, that there are some sermon notes here uh, that are just blank. I, I was on a uh, at a conference in D.C. talking about missions this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with one of our elders, Nathan, and I did not get notes to the office in time. So you can kind of jot down. They'll also be on the screen. I actually have a different title than what's printed here, and that is Live for His Glory. And so today, as we look at statements and signs, we, uh, signs and statements, we are taking the seventh and final sign that Jesus has in the book of John, alongside of what is the fifth I am statement of Jesus. What I want us to realize is that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, he is saying what he's saying, that he's the resurrection of life, but he's also saying, I am God. Because the words, I am, would reference back to the Old Testament when, G when God told Moses to describe himself or name his God as the great I am. And so Jesus is making a claim that he is divine, that he is not only man, but he's also uh, God as well. And in this story, in the uh, Gospel of John chapter 11, we are seeing that Jesus is anticipating 
his death, his burial, and his resurrection that's about to take place. In fact, it would happen within four months of him saying these words. We don't know the exact time frame, but if you have your Bible handy, you can kind of see how we know that it's within a, a four-month time frame. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 22, you'll see that what takes place at the end of chapter 10 is at the time um, of the Feast of Dedication, and you'll see in verse 22 that the Feast of Dedication happens in the winter. More specifically, the Feast of Dedication takes place in the month of December. And then at the end of chapter 11, after the event that we're going to read about, you can see in verse 55 of chapter 11 that it's the Passover. It says in 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover of the Jews that was at hand in 1155 is the Passover where Jesus would implement the Lord's Supper and, and indicate, hey, this is my body and my blood poured out on your behalf, and he would be arrested that night and be crucified the next day. So we don't know exactly when this takes place. We know it's after December and before March or April when he is, uh, is crucified. And so I want you to realize that as Jesus shares these words, as Jesus performs this miracle, it's anticipating his coming resurrection. If you will, turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to read the majority of the verses between 1 through 44. I am going to skip a few verses here and there. I would encourage you to, to glance through them as we go through, or you can read it later today as well. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill. This man was Lazarus of Bethany, and Bethany is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were brothers and sisters. In verse 2, it's actually pointing to an event that doesn't take place until chapter 12, but it says this, It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So Lazarus is sick, so Mary and Martha, verse 3, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he... Whom you love is ill. He whom you, whom you love is, is Lazarus. But when Jesus heard the news, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. I want us to pay attention to that word glory. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So what's about to take place is for the glory of God and that Jesus himself would be glorified as well. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go up to Judea again. That's where Bethany and Jerusalem is. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? If you look at chapter 10, you'll see that story. Now jump down to verses 11 through 15. It says this, Jesus says to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Then listen to verse 4, 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then whenever you jump down to verses 17 through 27, it says this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany, the village where he is, was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Here's what Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then this confession that Martha shares with him is amazing. In verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Then jump down with me to 32 through 44. It says, now when Mary, the other sister, came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying similar things to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then some of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture is found beginning in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And he was greatly troubled. And he said to them, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Then the most simple yet poignant verse of Scripture in verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and here's what he prayed to his father. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. So, in this story, we have a family that's familiar with Jesus and Jesus with them. These are not strangers. They are good friends. They are people that Jesus loves and knows intimately. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all siblings, live together in a village called Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, a couple of miles to the east. And we find their story in a couple of places in Scripture. We won't take the time to read it, but perhaps you're familiar with the story over in Luke chapter 10, where Mary and Martha are, are there, and Jesus is, is, is there, and, and Martha's scurrying about the house, and busy, 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 and Mary is just sitting at the feet of the Lord. And then here in John chapter 11, we have this story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and then they're mentioned again in chapter 12 of John. 
But we see in this story that because of the closeness that they all had with one another, it was natural that when Lazarus was sick that they turned to Jesus. I mean, Mary and Martha had no doubt been with Jesus when he had healed people. They'd heard what he had done. They'd seen it with their eyes. It was only natural that they would turn to Jesus in their time of need and say, Jesus, this one that you love, Lazarus, is sick. Come quickly. We need you. They knew that Jesus was more than capable of healing their brother, and so they called for him. I wanted us to take a look at a map, and the print may be a little bit small, but I do want us to kind of see the map so you can kind of know the lay of the land. Hopefully it'll be up there here in a second. Um, you'll see on this map, there it is, you'll see that uh, kind of red dot above the city of Jerusalem. Uh, so Jerusalem is where everything took place as far as going to the temple and where Jesus would be arrested and crucified and resurrected. And then just to the east, um, you may not be able to read it, but just to the right, it says Bethany. Um, it looks like it's a little bit of a distance, but if you'll see the chart down in the bottom left-hand corner, it's pretty far to go 10 miles. Uh, that, that, that scale is 10 miles wide, so it's only a couple miles over to Bethany. That's where, where, um, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And then if you see the Dead Sea to the right, to the east there, uh, and then the river that goes down into it, that's the Jordan River. And where Jesus is at this time is just across the Jordan River to the east of Bethany in Jerusalem in an area called Perea. And again, it looks like it's a great distance, but if you use the chart, you'll see that it's only about 20 miles. So Jesus is about 20 miles. We don't know exactly where he is, but he's just across the river. Jesus is only about 20 miles from where everything is happening. Surely when he gets the news that his friend is sick, he would hustle to get over there and, 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 and help his friend. But it's interesting. The account tells us that he waited four days, or two days, I mean, before he shows up. And by then, Lazarus had been four, de dead for four days. I want us to look at this story, and I want us to see who Jesus is in this incredible awesome yet at times confusing and interesting story of what takes place in the life of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Here are the notes. If, you had, if I had printed them in time, here's the first note that I would have had on the page. It says this, that Jesus does everything for his glory. He does everything for his glory. Look at verse 4. When Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick, here's what he says. Hey guys, this illness of Lazarus, it, it's not going to lead to death. Well, it will temporarily, but it won't be permanent death. And it says, it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We, we'll see the word glory at the end of the text as well. Everything that Jesus does in this story, and everything that he does in every story you read in the New Testament, is for the glory of his Father and of himself. So everything Jesus does... It's for his glory. I want us to take into consideration what does it even mean? What do we mean by the glory of God? The glory of God is God's magnificence. The glory of God is God's power. The glory of God is his loveliness, his beauty, his, the grandeur of his perfection. God is perfect. God is all-powerful. God is all-amazing. God is all-knowing. Anything that you would try to describe, the majesty and worth and value of God is in reference to his glory. Any description we try to use falls short of really explaining the glory of God. 
If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that whenever Moses is in the presence of God, he experiences the glory of God. And do you remember when Moses comes down off the mountain, there's a glow on his face. He actually had to wear uh, something, a veil over his face because he was so bright after having been in the majesty and presence and glory of God. So everything that Jesus does is to point back to who God is. In fact, the glory of God is a central theme throughout all of Scripture. Did you know that in the New Testament, the word glory that we see here is used 165 times? The word glorified, which is a similar word, is used 61 times. God displays his glory so that we can see who he is and be able to celebrate him for all of his worth and his value. So the only response, whenever you and I see the glory of God, is to fall down on our knees in worship. And so whenever Jesus acts in Scripture, not only in John chapter 11, but when he acts in Scripture, whenever he acts in real life today, in the present time, he's doing it for his glory. Some of us may be going, you know what? God sure does sound like he's a little hung up on himself. I mean, he's only tooting his own horn and celebrating himself. Well, here's the deal. God is all-powerful and perfect. He created everything. He put it all together. He is sovereign. He's large, and he's in charge. And it's just natural that he is to be worshipped and glorified and celebrated for who he is doesn't make him self-centered it just makes it that our lives should be centered completely totally on him and so here's jesus he's saying look at the glory of god and then respond in acts of worship for him and so if you look at verse four it says everything that's about to take place is for his glory that means the death of lazarus is actually going to be for the glory of the Lord. How could that be? Here's the deal. Jesus determined that in this scenario, he was going to give them a sign that was larger, bigger, and pointed to something much deeper than simply one who is able to heal someone that's sick. In this scenario, he was going to raise the dead to show that he himself had power over everything, including our greatest enemy, death. And so for Jesus to show this glory of God, he first had to pause long enough to allow Lazarus to die in order to show that this was from God himself. If you're familiar with the King James Version, and you're familiar with the story that takes place at the tomb. As Jesus is standing there. Lazarus' sister says, oh, let's not move the tomb because according to the King James Version, by this time he stinketh. I don't know if you've read that in the King James or not, but it, it's kind of funny and comical to read. But the reality is this is a decaying corpse and it would be nasty to open the tomb. So if Jesus is able to raise this one who has been decaying, then it's actually clearly the work and hand of God. And here's another interesting thing. This is day four. 
If you know much about the Jewish way of thinking back then, the thought process was, okay, a person dies, and the spirit is going to kind of hover around the body for about three days, waiting for an opportunity to kind of come back, and, and, and then after three days, the spirit's going to go somewhere else. And, and that was the common belief. While that's not exactly true, it's what was commonly held. And so whenever Lazarus was dead for four days, he was good and dead, and on top of that, he's stinking. All hope was gone. Everything looked like it was hopeless. But then Jesus shows up on the scene. And when Jesus raises him from the dead, it's clear that it's the work and the handiwork of God himself. And I want us to see this. If Jesus and everything he does is bring glory to God, then shouldn't you and I who follow Jesus seek to live in the same way so that all of our lives' actions and words and thoughts are intended to bring glory to him. I don't know if you're familiar with this, passage, uh, with this uh, catechism or not, but it's called the Westminster Confession. And, and it's a process of asking questions about what is true about who God is. And the first question is this, what is the chief end of man and the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever so a follower of Jesus our job is to glorify God and enjoy him forever likewise we as a church body as a church family living hope we should exist to bring glory to God the goal in our life as individuals and corporately and collectively is to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. Here at our church we have a vision and perhaps you've heard me refer to it as we want to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. Uh, while we were on uh, the trip this week, like I said, Nathan, one of our elders, went with me, and as we kind of were processing things, it dawned on both of us that it, it, while we believe every word of that vision statement, if we're not careful, that to the glory of God can almost be just a tag-on at the end, when in reality, that should be the starting point for everything that we do. That our lives should be for the glory of God in our life and through the life of everybody on this planet. And that because of his glory, because of his value, because of his worth, as a result of that, we should be a disciple who makes disciples who live out what it means to be the church. So I'm calling us that if you're a part of Living Hope and if you're a part of another church, I would call you to do the same thing. But let's use the starting point that it's all for the glory of God. And because of the glory of God, we respond in our life accordingly. The reason that we're a disciple the reason that we seek to make disciples, the reason we live out what it means to be the church is not for us, it's for him. He's the starting point. So Jesus shows us that his actions are all for the glory of God. Secondly, we see in Jesus' actions that he loves us. Jesus loves us. Look down at verse 5. In verse 5, it says this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's even interesting that the Jewish leaders who are out to get Jesus, that don't like Jesus, even they recognize by his reaction at the tomb, and it says in a summary towards the end of the chapter, they could see that Jesus loved them. 
That's found in verse 36. It's very clear throughout this whole passage that Jesus has a deep love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the reality is he has a deep love for you and for me. I'm sure you're familiar probably with John 3.16. At least you've seen it on a sign. I don't know that they have it on signs at football games all that much anymore, but you used to see it all the time at at football games, and perhaps you've memorized John 3.16. The easiest verse in the Bible to memorize is actually in this chapter, Jesus wept. That's pretty easy, and it's a very important verse we'll look at in a moment. But John 3.16 is one we're probably familiar with as well. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did Jesus even come to this planet? Because God so loved the people of this world that he wanted a relationship with us that he sent his son. Jesus loves us. But while that is true, how can we explain verses 5 and 6? I want you to see, at least in the ESV, what the first word is in verse 6. I'll read 5, we'll pause on the word 6, and we'll read the rest of 6. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's a great verse, right? And then let's flip to 6. So, because he loved them, therefore, because he loved them, because he loved them so When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You're like scratching your head like, that makes no sense. Think for just a moment. If during this service you got a text or a phone call or an email, you got some kind of contact from a family member that someone you love dearly has been in a car crash and and they are in Bryan at the hospital, you're probably not going to sit here until the service is over with or maybe even wait until Tuesday to check on them. No, you're probably going to dismiss yourself, and I would support you for doing so. You would probably dismiss yourself and go at least call the family or go up to Bryan to see how that person is doing. But in this scenario, it says because Jesus loved them, so he stayed two days longer. Makes absolutely no sense to the human mind at all. So here's Jesus. Because of his love for them, he leaves them in a lurch for a couple of days, which turns out to be four days as he travels. And four days after Lazarus dies, he finally shows up on the scene, all because, according to this passage, Jesus loved them so much. See, I believe that Jesus wanted them so desperately to see his glory that he knew exactly what the outcome was going to be, obviously. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and so he would have rather leave them kind of feeling like they're hanging for a couple of days so that he could display this miracle so they could believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the resurrection and the life. So I want to share with you that perhaps in our own lives, There could be moments where it feels like God isn't showing up in a timely fashion. He's not doing what we think he should. But could it be that in that scenario, it's very similar to what we see in verses 5 and 6. The reason he is showing up what we think is late is because he's doing something that will bring him glory. And he loves us. And so therefore, he's acting in the way that he is. I mean, it says there in verse 15... As he's talking to the disciples, when he said, all right, guys, let me break it down to you. Lazarus is dead. 
And I'm actually glad that we weren't there when he died because you're about to see something about who I am and who God is. He's rejoicing that they weren't there that day, all because he loved them so much that he wanted them to experience him in his fullness. This morning, I don't want you to miss this point. I want you to know that God loves you. Yes, you are a sinner. And when I say you, it's me as well. But I'm going to personalize and say you. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you either have in the past or you currently are living in open rebellion against God. And yes, we are thumbing our nose at God at times. And yet, he loves us. For God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, I just believe that some of us need to be reminded that Jesus loves you. Some of you this morning, you need to acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner, and yes, I need to repent of my sins, yes, I need to trust in Jesus, but Jesus loves me, and therefore, that's why he offers salvation and forgiveness of sin, because he loves me. None of us is so far gone that God can't redeem our situation. At times, you may kind of question his motives and not understand the whole thing, but the reality is he responds like he does because he loves you. And here's the cool thing about his love is that his love is active. So my next point, if I had printed it on the page, would say this, that Jesus is moved with compassion for us. Yes, he loves us, but it goes beyond just simply being able to understand his love for us to see that he is actually moved with compassion for us. As I read these verses a moment ago, I pointed out how, how incredible they are. I would like you to just glance down at verses 33 through 38. 33 through 38, show us the heart of Jesus as he reacts and responds to and interacts with Mary and Martha, as he interacts with those who are there mourning and they're sad for the death of their loved one. And as he interacts with them, we see tenderness and mercy and compassion and in some ways, empathy and sympathy towards them. He has a deep love for them that is active. We're going to look at particulars in just a moment, but I want you to hear me say this. God not only loves you, but he's actively demonstrating his love for you and pursuing a relationship with you. I want you to look at some of the words in these verses. Look at 33. It says that as Jesus is looking and taking in all the surroundings, it says he was deeply moved. In that same verse, he says it was, he was greatly troubled. Then you look down at verse 35, and it says that he wept. That's an act of love. That's compassion. And then in verse 38, we have the word deeply moved repeated once again. So deeply moved, greatly troubled. What is meant by that? That phrase indicates he's irate, he's angry, he has a visceral, visceral reaction about something. He is greatly moved. He is angry at the pain that death is bringing to this family and, and he hurts with them 
When he weeps, he's not crying because he's hopeless and feels like, well, what are we going to do now? No, he knows what he's about to do. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he weeps with the family because they are weeping. Do you hear the compassion? Do you see the compassion of Jesus? Why did Jesus show such a great emotion? I, re- I believe the reason that Jesus is reacting this way is because while he is sovereign and, and is the author of this story, this true story that took place, he, he, he wrote the details, he knew what would take place, he is intimately and deeply concerned with the characters in that story. He doesn't just write a story and walk away kind of a cold or, 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 or callous towards the situation. Instead, even in his sovereignty, he is loving us and demonstrating his compassion to us. In this case, he responds emotionally to the ravaging destruction of death. And he's hurting with those who are hurting. There's a passage of scripture, perhaps you've seen it before, you may want to jot it down, Romans 12, 5. A portion of that verse in Romans 12, 5 says this. In fact, let me, let me turn to it real quick. Romans 12, 5. As Paul is kind of describing how we're to interact with one another, I said 5, sorry, verse 15. Romans 12, 15 says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Here's Jesus living out the very words that Paul challenges us as followers of Jesus to do, and that is he entered into the sorrow of this family. There's a couple of things I think we should do with this. Number one, we should take great comfort that Jesus loves us so much that he demonstrates compassion towards us. And then right alongside of that, I think we should see the model that he, that he displays for us. And that likewise, in our lives, whenever we run into people who are dealing with difficulties, that we should seek to hurt with them, mourn with them, weep with them, and to show great compassion to them as well. Along a similar line, I'd like for us to look down at verses 21 through 23. This is an interaction with Martha and Jesus. We see in this interaction that Martha is very real with Jesus, telling him kind of what's on her mind. I want us to read what she says, and then I want to see Jesus' tender, compassionate response to her. Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And then it says that Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. The reason I took the time to read that again to you is this. Jesus could have like jumped down Martha's throat, but that's not who he is. When she said, Jesus, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. He could have said, don't blame me, like, I got here as soon as I could. He could have said lots of things, but no, he didn't correct her for speaking her heart, pouring out her emotions, and being real and transparent with him. He simply loved her well and said, your brother will rise again. And the reason I say that is this. In our life, 
There may be days where we just need to pour our hearts out to God and say, God, I don't understand what's happening around me. I don't get it. If you had shown up, it wouldn't have happened this way. Where were you, God? Why did you allow this to happen? While we should say these things with complete reverence and respect for God, we can still voice our concerns and cares to him and he's not going to dismiss us instead he is going to lovingly point us to the truth of who he is and he will walk us through those emotions those hurts those that that pain that confusion and that anger perhaps you've read through the psalms there's 150 of them but through many of those psalms we'll see the psalmist saying God, I've cried all night and you haven't been here. Where are you? My enemies are attacking me. It feels like you're so far away. And most of those psalms, you'll come to the end and realize, but God, I don't have all the answers, but I know you're good. The reality is that God wants us to pour out our emotions to him, knowing that he is compassionate and loving, and he's not ever leaving us alone because of his active compassionate love for us you are never alone god is with you in your biggest hurt in your biggest confusion in your biggest disappointment likewise we as a church family we are called to show that same compassion with others that are around us now let's look at this quote that Jesus shares, this I am statement. If I had put this in the notes, it would say this, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We see that in 23 through 26. After Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Martha says to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Martha, as we can see in her response to him, was very much like the Pharisees and many of the Jews in those days. They believed that a day was coming at the end of time, like you and I believe, that, that, that those who follow God will be raised to life. And so she's saying, Jesus, I believe you. I know that my brother will rise again. In fact, I know at the last day he'll rise then. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not just teaching about the resurrection i am the resurrection you see god doesn't just provide the resurrection for us he doesn't just teach us the truth of resurrection that's hope in christ rather he is the resurrection and the life jesus in this statement i am the resurrection and the life is making a claim that he is god because only god holds the keys to life and death and he says i have the keys and authority over death throughout scripture we find this truth that 100 percent of the population of the world of all time you and i and everyone we could name starts off life dead in sin. That because of our sin against God, our disobedience to God, that what we receive and deserve is death. Physical death, eternal death, uh, spiritual death, separation from God. 
that you and I, because of our sin, are absolutely, completely hopeless. What can a dead person do? Absolutely nothing. And because of our sin, we are dead. But just as we saw in this baptism a moment ago, a a picture of what Christ has done on our behalf, that even though we are dead in our sins, that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can be raised to new life. So how do we receive life when we are dead? Scripture tells us this, that God sent his son. I mentioned that a moment ago, John 3, 16. God sent his son, Jesus, to live a life that you and I cannot live. All of us are sinners against God. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect life, a life that you and I cannot live. And even though he did not deserve death, he willingly died on the cross for our sins. That passage I read before the baptism in 2 Corinthians says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, that we might have his righteousness when we trust and believe in him. So this morning, I would ask you, do you personally know Jesus as the resurrection and the life? I'm not asking if you gone to church all your life. I'm not asking, have you been baptized? I'm asking, have you trusted in Jesus and in him alone, through his grace alone, through faith in him that Jesus has died for you, that you've trusted in that price that he's paid for you that you might receive the forgiveness of your sins? And if that's not you, then today would you When we get ready to sing in a moment, would you come stand right here and talk with me and say, hey, I got to know more. What does it mean to trust in Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be forgiven of sins? What does it mean to repent of my sins? What does it mean to be made a new creation in Christ? And then at the same time, many of us in this room, many of us watching online, we've experienced salvation. But my question for us is, do we acknowledge and understand that the gospel is more than forgiveness of sins which it is the gospel is more than being saved from hell and separation from god in eternity which it is the gospel also involves the spirit at work and empowering us to a whole new life today that we would experience the power of his resurrection in our own lives today what i mean by that is this since jesus is the resurrection and the life since jesus provides salvation through what he's done on the cross and his resurrection for us at the same time his that same power that raised jesus from the dead is is uh, uh, available to us that the holy spirit empowers us to live a life that is honoring to him I encourage you to live in the power of the resurrection today. All too often, those of us who are followers of Jesus are trying to do it in our own power and our own strength. It's time for us to stop trying to do that. Let's live in the power of his resurrection. Let's live in the fact that he is the resurrection and the life, and that we cannot do it without him.
I want to finish this morning by making one final point, and that is this. That you and I are to respond to his glory by believing in him. And when we do, we'll actually see more of his glory. Look down in verse 40. As Jesus is talking to Martha, there at the tomb, when she says, hey, um, there's an odor. Like, he's been dead for four days. And then Jesus says to her in verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So in her scenario, how did she see the glory of God? She saw it when they rolled the stone away. She saw it when Jesus stepped up. She saw it when Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, it says, came waddling out with his burial clothes still around him. Lazarus didn't come out and say something. Lazarus didn't come out and say, look at me, look what I did. No, the glory was pointing all to Jesus because Jesus is the one that did it. And it was very clear to her that as she believed in Jesus, she was able to see more of his glory whenever she, he raised his, her brother to life. So, what is the proper response to the glory of God? The proper response to the glory of God is to fall down and worship him and in the act of worship to believe in him. In these 44 verses in chapter 11, the word believe is used seven times. This morning, in this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we see the glory of God. We see that God loves us. He has compassion for us that he provides the strength for spiritual salvation as well as the power and strength to live a daily life of following him. And my question for us this morning is, are you ready to believe in him? Or are you going to go about your day and say, that was kind of cool. It was awesome to see the people get baptized. It was kind of neat to see each other and walk out of here unchanged. I encourage all of us that instead that we would respond by believing in Jesus Christ and seeking to live for his glory. So I want to encourage you with a few things that you can do to apply this message today. And here's the first one. I encourage you to read the scripture. I encourage you to study the scripture. I encourage you to spend time with God on a daily basis pouring over the scriptures, underlining, circling, making notes, keeping a journal, praying through, seeking to understand what scripture teaches, and then seeking to live it out, that you, as you read scripture, would look for the glory of God as you read the scripture. And then as you walk out and begin to live your life, that you would live your life for his glory. So as you read scripture, look for his glory. As you live your life, live for his glory. As you talk to others, share his glory with others. You and I, we get one life to live before eternity. Let's make this life count by being the church together, living for the glory of God, prodding one another on to seek and live for God's glory. In John chapter 11. We see the glory of God. We see his love and his compassion for us. We see his power over death, his power for life. My question for you and for me today is, are we going to live for his glory? Let me pray for us.